say I'm understudy, might say I'm over the top, but there's like no free water, but soda pop is overstocked. They say amazing grace. So for this Tanya's tidbit, I wanted to talk about inclusive language and some new terms that I've uh, learned and some other components that I want to talk about related to inclusive language. So here are some of the terms that I've heard recently uh, that you could start to integrate. Uh, let's see. Instead of, um, you know, learning disability, I have heard the phrase non-traditional needs. Love that. I was facilitating a DNI workshop recently, and a colleague of mine um, shared a term with me that I think is great. So that when you're addressing a large group of people, especially when it's like interactive stuff and you know has a workshop setting, instead of when you're asking everybody to stand up, uh, if you include in that um, or stand up or move to another location in the in the space. Um, you can also include roll and stand, right? Uh, in this case, there was somebody there in a wheelchair, and um, there was another individual who actually uh, was part of Tammy Duckworth's campaign, lost both her legs in combat, and uh, one of the things that they integrated uh, when working with Tammy Duckworth uh, was the idea of roll and stand. I got really excited about that one because when I first heard it, I was like, really? Like, wouldn't that feel really kind of like condescending or um, would it be off-putting off, off for a person who um, is, uh, has full use of their legs to say roll and stand? But um, the feedback I got actually was that that is more inclusive. Some other feedback I got recently uh, was in a facilitation, and honestly, I didn't use this uh, term, but a coworker did, and the person who came to give feedback about it ended up speaking to me about it. But at one point, uh, we were doing an exercise based in eye contact, and uh, my colleague gave a direction around the fact that, uh, you know, for most people, Establishing eye contact is the norm, that people on the autism spectrum tend to be people who have difficulty with eye contact, so on and so forth. And somebody who actually is on the spectrum came up to me afterwards and said, you know, that's a presumption that a lot of people make. In fact, my issue, my, issue, my challenge isn't with eye contact as much as it is with, um, how did they express it? Essentially saying, you know, that their set of challenges wasn't in this sort of generalized notion people tend to have about people on the spectrum that they cannot um, establish or make eye contact. So uh, I thought that was very, very valuable and interesting. So some of this goes along with the theme of what I'm going to be talking, talking about, um, which is this desire and the necessity when it comes to inclusive language to adapt first and ask questions later so that when I got this feedback, I got really excited. I put it in my um, toolkit in terms of things I can do moving forward. Um, I didn't feel a defensiveness uh, because I didn't know, but I did feel an excitement because now that I did know, 
I could do it moving forward. I could spread the word. I could let people know. Um, something happened to me recently, and it really made me just think about what people are thinking when they're communicating. So um, I just recently participated in something where I worked with a group of Black actors, and um, we rehearsed for a week straight together. And somebody who was in charge of the entire thing after we uh, performed the reading came up to us and basically was trying to, you know, be friendly and compliment us on our reading and said something to the effect of like, you know, and it was a big week, you know, and, you know, how was your rehearsal schedule? Were they slave drivers? And this is a white person who said this to us. And it just made me really think about, like, what goes on in somebody's mind when they come up to a group of black people and they are talking about the level of work they have put into something, it seems to me like it would be the most automatic thing in the world to not use <laughs> the phrase slave driver. Um, I mean, in general, it's probably something that could be taken off the table, but most certainly when you're speaking to a group of black people, like, it just seems to me like a no-brainer, but obviously it isn't a no-brainer. And this was the person who had run the entire thing, responsible for bringing everyone together. Everybody at the table decided to let it slide, but we all immediately sort of talked about it after the person walked away. Like, did you catch that? Because, of course, I caught it. But on occasion, I'm like, boy, am I just too hypersensitive at this point? And so it registered on my radar. I chose not to. I, I, I precisely chose not to in that moment. It was not the right time. Um, but I found out then that everyone around me felt exactly the same way and just how, like, not a good look it is for a white person or a black person or person of color to walk up to a group of black people and use the phrase um, slave driver anywhere in relation to them. So for what it's worth, it takes such a level of consciousness and intentionality. And I recognize that that might start to make people paranoid, but I just wonder, I just like how it just, how, or does the word slave driver come to mind because they're approaching this group of black people and something subconsciously happens <laughs> that that's the phrase that you come up with? It's a trip. I don't have answers. I only have questions sometimes. Um, but all of this beginning of this conversation is really about the fact that, like, I am such a willing, willing participant in this process. And I don't know what I don't know. And as soon as I do, I am excited to adjust and spread the word, which is why I brought these new terms to you. And again, it's up to you to take them or leave them. But I find them really interesting and exciting. And of course, if I were to say something like, okay, everybody roll and stand. And then I got feedback from an individual in um, whatever workshop I might be facilitating that they did find that offensive, then, you know, I would also take that information and adjust from there. So it's, it's a process. Um, mistakes will be made. Adjustments must be made. And it's all a good Thing. And I think that leads into something I want to talk about, which is 
you know, um, last Tanya's tidbit was talking about being comfortable with discomfort. And, and I want to also add to that this idea of having comfort with the unknown, that because all of this is so fluid and because inclusion is a fast-moving train um, and things can change overnight, right? You can get comfortable with one thing and then find out the next moment that that's already changed, that you have to be comfortable with the unknown and that feedback isn't always going to be 360 or complete, but that there's something that you can hold on to. So an example of that is uh, Lori Lightfoot, who is now Chicago's mayor, made history when she was elected as the first black female gay, you know, uh, mayor of Chicago. Right around the time, right before she was um, elected, I started to notice um, on social media and in various communities that a lot of my black and brown and queer friends were starting to express their concerns about her and really advocating for her not to be elected mayor. Um, and as soon as I saw that, I got curious. Uh, and at the time, there was a lot of other things going on for me, so I wasn't able to really do a deep dive. Also, I don't live in Chicago. I'm in a suburb of Chicago, so technically I don't vote for mayor. So if I was voting for mayor, of course I would have had to do the deep dive right then. But because I don't, what I did essentially was I bookmarked it. I took note, and I gained a healthy sense of skepticism around her. Um, and for me, that was enough, right? So it didn't have to be tied up with a bow. I didn't have to know 100% one way or the other whether she was the right candidate. But I did have to value and hear the feedback that I was getting around me and take it seriously, right? Because there is no point in me denying what they're saying. There's no point in me trying to prove them wrong. I value them. They're intelligent people. They've expressed a concern. And for now, I'm able to hold that concern at the same time that I'm able to acknowledge this woman made history. One thing I also wanted to talk about is the bravery that being in this continuum of inclusion, the bravery that it takes. And a quick story about that is my daughter, uh, my older daughter has a friend who wears a hijab. And we were running errands one day and, and I could tell something was bothering her and I got her to talk to me about it. And basically she was saying, you know, I've been calling her friend's hijab a scarf. And she's like, I don't think that's the proper terminology. I think I might have been offending her all this time. And she was really upset about it. And I said, well, all you can do is ask. And she felt a lot of vulnerability around this idea that she would have to bring it up or that she would find out that she had been offending her or that she had been doing something wrong. And it just really reminded me of, like, how courageous you have to be in that moment to seek feedback, be willing to be wrong, and then just own it. So I said, all you have to do is text her and go, you know, what's the um, is it offensive to refer to a hijab as a scarf? And, uh, you know, if her friend were to say, actually, it is offensive, then all she, all she would have to do is apologize and do better later and do better moving forward. And so she did text her friend and her friend was like, oh, no, I'm not offended. 
Um, I sometimes call it a scarf and a story. And, and, you know, you could see this weight come off her shoulders. And I was really proud of her in that moment. And it was really cool to observe because in real time, she did what we all need to do, which is have the bravery to seek feedback. And once you get the feedback, um, either way, move forward. Um, and so if her friend had actually said, yes, in fact, I, I, I do get offended by that, then, you know, she could ask for uh, sort of forgiveness retroactively and just simply not do it again. And nobody died and no friendships ended. And, you know, rather than her not asking and continuing to um, make assumptions or adjust and start using hijab but feel like she'd never apologized in case she had offended her, she just nipped it in the bud. And that is what we need to do. And that takes bravery. Uh, I wanted to talk briefly about um, something that Margaret Atwood, who's responsible for Handsmaid's Tale, um, or what is it? Handsmaiden Tale? I don't know what it's called. But anyways, everybody knows. It's a very popular show. And, um, and she recently was quoted in an article basically saying that, she, uh, you know, what's happening with our abortion laws in this country is a form of slavery. And that's been going around on social media. I just wanted to share a quick take on my feelings about this idea of comparing really anything to slavery. It happens a lot. It's a shorthand, I think, when people are trying to express something that is potentially horrifying, awful, um, human rights abuses, whatever it might be. They do this shorthand where they try to compare it to slavery. And for me, that never works. And while I appreciate that Margaret Atwood um, said it was a form of slavery, I think that that was very intentional. Um, slavery is unparalleled. It is simply unparalleled. And I think when people try to draw the comparison, they are not giving slavery its due, the horrors. Uh, beginning with the fact that, you know, I, I read recently an article that basically stated that, you know, 100% of women who were slaves were raped, right? That white women would time the births of their children with the births of their slaves so that their slaves could nurse their babies, right? Not the babies they gave birth to, but the white woman's baby. So that the nutrients that were meant for their child was going to their slave owner's child. And I could go on and on and on and on. Now, the horrors of what's happening in contemporary time and women's rights being, you know, taken away, that has its own stance. And I think we need to find the words that articulate that rather than try to reach back and compare it to something unparalleled that we really ultimately can't even imagine. That's my take on that. So I wanted to talk a little bit about resistance when it comes to this notion of inclusive language, but I've gotten some feedback lately that's made me think about it. I want to share it with you. So I also have the Tanya's Take newsletter which if you'd like to be added to that newsletter, 
uh, you can uh, message me on Tanya's Take Facebook page and uh, give me the email that you would like me to add to the newsletter list, mailing list, and I will do so. But anyways, about once a month, twice a month, I send out a newsletter. Um, and it's actually different content largely than what I talk about on the podcast. It has a little bit of a professional development angle to it, so on and so forth. Um, and so I recently sent something out about inclusive language, which partly is what made me want to talk a little bit more about it on the podcast. But um, I essentially was saying, my Lord, if you get feedback that somebody wants to be addressed as you know, they, their, them. If we find out that the best way to address a large group of people in order to be inclusive is saying, hey, folks, hey, everybody, hey, friends, rather than, hey, guys, ladies and gentlemen, what does it cost us to adjust, right? Nothing, right? There's no reason to resist that. Now, I added an example that I knew would be a little bit of a hot rod, and um, it was. And the example I included was, you know, what if we hear that the word picnic has a racist history and some people find it offensive? Who does it hurt to use instead barbecue, get together, so on and so forth? And I knew that that might either, number one, have people go, wait, what? Because they'd never heard about this racist history um, connected to the word. Or they might just be like, okay, seriously, now we can't use the word picnic. So anyways, I sent the email or sent the newsletter out and I got some um, thoughtful feedback from people, which of course I welcome. But they shared with me something that I actually already knew, which is that, yes, the etymology and origin of the word picnic is not based in our racist history. What has happened is... Uh, for some people in the black community, it is, it is a reminder of the fact that lynchings in the South would take place in these picnic-like settings, right? Like there are historical documents, pictures where you see crowds of white people with their children in a picnic setting, and there's literally black people hanging from trees. Like this was a party picnic atmosphere. So I uh, feel as if that feedback is enough for me to say, oh, I'll just start using another word. No big deal. So some of the feedback I got back was, in fact, picnic is not, you know, the word picnic is not um, what didn't come out of those lynchings, right? It's actually got, you know, its etymology is based in, I believe, um, French language, so on and so forth. And I responded back, hopefully respectfully, just basically saying, yes, I know. It is not the origin. I'm not talking about origin or etymology. I'm talking about how people feel. I'm talking about um, uh, what people have shared in terms of what makes them comfortable or not comfortable. In the context that I um, was thinking of, it was based on a community trying to come together and trying to use the best language where everybody could feel included. And so for me, that was enough. For me, that's enough. So, of course, whenever you get any kind of feedback, there's that vulnerability. And I was like, oh, darn it. Kind of, I kind of wish I hadn't used that example because I knew people could find argument with it. But really, I realized any of the examples I used, people could find argue with, argument with it. 
And I started to think about the resistance. Again, it's really more about people's resistance to change, right? Outside of the people who gave me feedback about this um, reference to picnics, racist history, it's really about, like, I think some people are concerned about how far are we going to go in this continuum around inclusive language. Like, I think it's the most exciting thing in the world. Just like I feel like being in the unknown about Lori Lightfoot and being willing to not have a black and white answer about her is grand. And I could just sort of like camp in the unknown, right, of it all, even though I hate camping. Same thing here. Like, I, am, I get really excited when I find out that there's new terms that I can learn, that, you know, Facebook on their application has like 46 different ways you can identify. Um, I think that's exciting. Some people think that is like the road to death, you know? Um, some people think that if there are no limits, then we just have chaos. And um, these are people that I respect. And these are people who I think of as, you know, people with liberal points of view. But I have had conversations with people who refuse to adjust their language around um, pronouns, who think it's nonsense. And um, they dismiss the idea that somebody chooses to identify a certain way, which on my end, I think is completely disrespectful, is harassment and leads to violence. Um, and is a form of violence. Um, but when it comes to the things of like, well, how far are we going to go now? Now we can't even use the word picnic. I really wonder if that resistance is key to what actually upholds supremacy, right? And how even the most liberal among us can have our limits in terms of how far we're willing to go in this continuum and that we have to even challenge ourselves when we think we are dignified and saying all right that's enough i refuse to adjust my language around the word picnic that's ridiculous well then what are we doing why are we dismissing these people who are sharing their truth with us again what does it cost us and what are we upholding um and i think it matters right i don't know the entire other side of this argument that it it could just break loose towards a free-for-all if we were to be willing to constantly change and constantly evolve even if it's on a daily basis but i i do uh at the same time that i valued some of the conversations i had around that and respect the people i had them with i really started to wonder boy is this how embedded we are in the power structure, the patriarchy, supremacy. And I feel like everything has to be challenged and everything has to change in order to topple it. And embracing that with glee is the space I'm in with it right now. And I hope to inspire you to feel the same because that's really the only way. That's the only way. I mean, it's got to be a full-on toppling of the power structures. Let's get to it. You can follow me on Tanya's Take Facebook page, and you can also uh, follow me 
at Tanya's Take on Instagram. You can subscribe on Podbean and you can rate and review and subscribe on iTunes. Please do so. It helps people find the podcast. And uh, Tanya's Take Season 2 is coming soon. Take care, everybody. Catch the train. It's moving fast. Maybe it'll be all right. Maybe you're all wrong.